listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2016. Today's episode is titled Money and the Kingdom of God. The idea of kingdom implies a king and a domain over which the king reigns. Given a created universe and a sovereign creator who wishes to rule, then the universe is the domain of the creator. Management must be aware of the assumptions that underlie the world's monetary systems and recognize the risk associated with non-biblical monetary policies. The degree to which these policies are inconsistent with a Christian worldview is accordingly a measure of the risk. In the end, non-biblical systems will prove to be flawed and will produce chaos, making orderly business difficult. Therefore, organizational management, in whatever way possible, must encourage public policy aligned with Scripture and be monetarily wise about debt, investments, and reserves for difficult times. Debt should be used with prudence. Investments should reflect the wisdom of diversification, not faddishness. Reserves should be segregated from working capital and used only in the event of true emergencies. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Money and the Kingdom. Well, this morning I want to talk about money and the kingdom. And we're talking about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is obviously a very rich topic in Scripture. It's referring to the reality of of Christ being the king, and we're talking about the domain of the king, which is everything. He is Lord of all, and therefore he is king of all. So that's the kingdom we're talking about. Then money, money is the thing that we are accustomed to, that we seem to gravitate to uh, in terms of why we do a lot of things. We think it's to make money, which uh, that is a very common thinking. I'm not claiming that's biblical thinking. In fact, I would assert it's not biblical thinking. And so as we get into this, we need to understand we've got to under, we've got to go where, where we commonly think and then contrast that with what is biblical thinking. So the pedestrian view of money is that money is commonly thought of as a medium of exchange to facilitate economic transactions. Uh, it also economic transactions are about things that, uh, situations where you see something that you want more than the money, so you're willing to trade the money for that, that thing. For example, if you bought breakfast this morning, um, and you value that breakfast more than the money that you paid for it, then you traded the money for the breakfast. So that's, uh, that's an economic transaction. So money is uh, recognized officially as, as legal tender, for goods and services in any particular uh, jurisdiction. So each country in the world generally exercise some level of sovereign power in defining a monetary system that their, co- their businesses or their people that conduct commerce would then operate under. So money is a circulating medium of exchange as defined by a government. Uh, the pedestrian view of the purpose of money is to facilitate an economic transaction between two parties who recognize they cannot meet all their needs independently. Each party then trades something they have for something they want more. And this is known as an economic transaction. And there's a measure of truth in that. But as we're going to see today in our discussion, we've got to go beyond that if we're really going to see the depth of what money really is. Well, to understand something about where we are today, 
Uh, it's helpful to know some, some of the facts about our monetary system today. Uh, there are approximately 167 uh, currencies in the world today. Uh, now these, all these currencies are fiat currencies. I don't know. I have not found anywhere that there's any monetary system that's not a fiat system. Now, a fiat system is a, basically a monetary system uh, that has no, no backing behind it other than the full faith and credit of the, the com- country that's issuing that currency. So, for example, the United States, uh, the dollar is the currency, <clears throat> and there's, you can't trade the dollar. You can't go to the government and ask them to exchange the dollar for gold or silver. You, you simply, uh, they will not do that because the dollar is not convertible to gold or silver from the standpoint of the government. Now you can go to someone that deals, a dealer who has a business in gold or silver and buy gold or silver. You could do that, but the government will not convert it to gold or silver. That's what we mean by a fiat currency where the government's saying, no, there's nothing that, that this, this dollar bill doesn't represent, you know, an equivalency of gold or silver. Now, the number of countries and territories in the world currently is 257. And so you can see that many of the countries of the world, probably a third of them, adopt a, a fiat currency of some other country. And that way they have, uh, you know, they don't have to then issue their own money. Interestingly, the U.S. dollar is the most traded currency in the world. About 47% of all global payments are in the dollar. And about 87% of the foreign exchange market markets, daily transactions, those are dollar denominated. So the dollar tends to be a primary currency. In many cases, for most currency, it's the reserve currency. A reserve currency is a backup currency. Should uh, their currency falter or they have difficulty, they will they will then they will then move to doing things according to the U.S. dollar. Now, of course, there are currencies in the world that are trying to compete with the U.S. dollar for that status of reserve currency, like the euro uh, and the French, uh, the uh, Chinese one. Uh, those are things that are, you know, in play where people are trying to do that. And I understand that there's actually a move afoot for some organization, not one country, but an organization of countries who are trying to put together a commodity-based currency system. I don't know how far along it is. I just heard reports that it's in progress, and the feeling is that if they can succeed in putting this together, then they will be able to become the reserve currency of the world. So you can see that fiat money system uh, creates some interesting dynamics as, as countries try to jockey for who's trusted most, because the key thing about a fiat money system is trust. If you don't trust the country behind the currency, then then that that system will not do well. The United States right now, believe it or not, is the most trusted currency currency in the world because it is the most trusted current uh, country in the world. Now, that definitely can change and probably will change. It's just a matter of when and what that looks like. So that is where we are today. So if we go back to the beginning, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where we have the creation account, and we began to look in, at uh, how God created this universe and ask the question, what was God's intent 
for a monetary system? What did he have in mind? And why would he, we even need it? Well, I think it's very clear that, that we need a monetary system because of the realities of how God created his universe. First of all, there's this huge universe that he's given us, and he's created, created a man and a woman, put them in a garden, and gave them everything they needed in the garden, and now said to, to manage and multiply. Manage would include advancement and uh, developing the garden into a bigger and bigger garden, and multiplying is more and more people to help, you know, in the increasing size of the garden. Uh, you can see that it's almost like the picture was before the fall of man. Just take the garden and build the garden. Stay within the garden and just expand the garden. So given the size of the planet that we're on, you can see that's a huge task. We have a huge planet. You know, the circumference around the world is 25,000 miles. That's a monstrous amount of distance that you have to go and, and exercise dominion over. So you need lots of people. Furthermore, one of the things that God did is he made it so that no one person could be self-sufficient. We can't multiply by ourselves. We have to have a, a man and a woman in a relationship together to be able to multiply. So he, he made us interdependent right out of the box. Another thing that became evident over time is that different people have different gifts. So no one person is an expert in everything. So we all have, have abilities to become really skilled at certain things, but not everything. So that makes us very interdependent. So we have this need of more people. We have this need of interdependence. Uh, and, and so how do you, how do you function in that environment when you realize I can't be completely self-sufficient, particularly given the fall? Now that we have a fall in creation and we're no longer in the garden, we're out of the garden and having a, even a more challenging time to rule God's creation and discover all its secrets, then well, how do we do that? Well, more than ever, we have to have a way to trade goods and services with each other. We've got to have a way to do things that other people will value, and we can sell those to other people to buy things that we need that we can't produce because we can't be self-sufficient. So I think God anticipated this reality when he put gold in the garden. Now, that is an amazing thing, gold in the garden. The gold in the garden represents the need that man would have for a currency to facilitate the creation mandate, given the size of the universe and the interdependence of mankind. So God is anticipating this because he tells us in the garden there's gold. Now, it appears that the goal was in a particular area of the garden. Genesis 2, verses 11 and 12, notes this as the land of Havilah. And specifically, the gold is there. In addition, there's bdellium and onyx stone. Bdellium is, is more like a, um, uh, it, it's, it's a resin of some sort, uh, probably like something like spices. And then, of course, onyx is a precious stone. So you see other things that God has put there, and you'll notice that he says, particularly of the gold in Genesis chapter 2 there, the gold of the land is good. And good means it lines up with God. It suggests that the gold is there for a strategic purpose, because God is all about being strategic. So exactly what is that? Well, that text doesn't unpack it, but as we begin to look at history and study Scripture, it becomes clear 
that the gold becomes the medium of exchange, the, <clears throat> the primary medium of exchange, really for currencies worldwide. And so the first gold coins were actually struck in 600 B.C. in Lydia in Asia Minor. At least that's the best we can tell at this point. Perhaps there were some struck earlier. We just don't know. But the earliest record we have goes back to Asia Minor and the city of Lydia. Now, obviously, gold was around in the, in the garden, so they, they knew of the gold. They used the gold. In fact, we find as we get into Scripture that they were using gold Early on, very, very early, early days, they were using gold as a measure of wealth. So, for example, from creation to 1000 A.D., money was was a commodity based primarily on gold, silver, land, and livestock. Genesis chapter 13, verse 2, which was dated roughly around 2000 B.C., Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And, of course, we know that to that you could add land because he was in the promised land. So those are the four key things. Now, there's some people that would note a fifth thing that would have been a common uh, evidence of wealth back in that time, and that is people, the, avow- avow- to, uh, to the ability to assimilate people and then to utilize people to you know, produce livestock and produce crops, those kinds of things. So what we have here now is just – an incredible revelation of how the early people viewed wealth, what was really important to them. They had no fiat currency at all. It was always based on commodities, you know, hard assets that could, that would be valued universally. It didn't matter where you went in the world. Everybody valued gold. Everybody valued silver. Everybody valued land and livestock and people. Now, there were times when silver was not as valued. We see this in Second Chronicles 9, verse 20, which apparently during Solomon's times, all of his drinking vessels were gold, and the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold, no, not, not silver, for that, this was counted as nothing in the days of Solomon. So silver was not precious in that time. So it tells you that silver, is kind of, it's, it's, there are times when it's seen as precious and times when it would be viewed as a base metal, which would not be precious. So you have some things that are not not fully in the same category as gold that from time to time will be viewed as currencies, or at least worthy of currency. So a little history here of gold and and, uh, some of how it's used in Scripture and the pros and cons of using gold. So 451 times gold appears in Scripture. 321 times we have silver mentioned in Scripture. Now, gold and silver as monetary systems tend to be very durable. They're uniform. There's a scarcity. That is, you can't, man can't produce these. You have to find them, you know, in, in nature. You have to go out there and recover them. You can divide them up. You can cut them up and have different quantities of gold in coins or, or in ore. They're fungible. Gold is the same. An ounce of gold is an ounce of gold. It doesn't matter where you are. You can trade an ounce of gold for an ounce of gold, and you still have an ounce of gold. So it's very fungible. It's widely valued and accepted. It's very portable. In other words, you can have gold coins in your pocket. The problem is it's heavy. That's that's the challenge. And it does support price stability. When you look back at inflation over history, um, prior to about 200 years ago, there really was very little inflation 
associated with gold or silver. The inflation was always associated with fiat money, and fiat money has no precious metals behind it. It's just money because government says it's money. And largely, fiat money systems are are paper. Now, today, they're becoming more and more electronic. Uh, many of you get paid, and you never see any currency. All you get is a bank statement that says you have some credit in your account, equivalent to whatever whatever denomination of currency that you're using. So, for example, you, you're paid in the U.S. dollar. You may have a credit in your account for so many U.S. dollars, and that credit can be used. Then you can write checks, pay bills, do electronic transfers, you know, from those credits. So in many ways, fiat currency today is really not so much paper. It's really the electronic credit. Now, there are disadvantages of gold and silver. For example, uh, you know, silver which is the atomic symbol AG, uh, it weighs, the weight of silver is 47. The weight, atomic weight is, the, is a measure of the number of protons in the nucleus of the atom. And the weight is normally about double because you know from your atomic physics that generally there are about, a, about as many neutrons in the, in the, uh, atom as the, as protons. So, the neutrons are electrically neutral. The protons are electrically positive, and so they and they both weigh about the same. So you put the two, the protons and neutrons together, you get an atomic weight, and the atomic weight is generally about double the atomic number. Well, gold is symbol AU. It's the same thing. Atomic number seventy nine. Atomic weight one hundred ninety seven. Same kind of thing there. So you can see gold is twice as heavy as silver, and so that makes it even more difficult to transport. Uh, another disadvantage of gold and silver monetary systems is unequal distribution of gold and silver deposits. Now, that's very interesting. Why would there be unequal distributions? Well, we know in the garden, gold was confined apparently to one area. But then once they fell, now you begin to discover gold in other areas, but it's not uniform. So on some level, Perhaps something happened at the fall that it maybe in some way impacted the distribution of gold and silver. We really don't know that, but we know that there was an impact on the physical world by the fall. The full implications of that, we don't have full revelation on that. But we do note it appears to be unequally distributed based on what we know today. Now, in the future, they may discover some things that we don't know today about the distribution of gold and silver. Because many times gold and silver are not found, you know, in pure form. They're found mixed with other elements. So there may be something discovered in the future that we don't anticipate have no idea about today. But as it stands today, there appears to be an equal distribution. The money supply seems to be limited to the amount of gold or silver. If you've got a commodity-based system, based on gold and silver, then whatever gold and silver is in your country kind of limits the wealth of the country. And you can see how this will impact how governments think about, you know, commodity-based systems. We have uh, limited options for responding to economic calamity if you have a limited supply of gold and silver. So you can see how people get into the idea of a zero-sum game. There's only so much gold and silver, and if you – if you take some gold, you're taking it from someone, and, you know, there's not an idea that, well, maybe there's more and more to discover. 
you know, there's there's little thinking about there. It's more we think about the limitations of it. And then, of course, for large transactions, it becomes very impractical, particularly if you have to go someplace and take a bunch of gold or silver to affect the transaction. So those are the disadvantages that are pretty easy for everyone to see. Now, fiat money systems began around the 10th century A.D. in China. And initially, fiat money systems were paper depository receipts for commodities. But what happened was the Chinese government ran out of gold and silver. And so when they ran out of gold and silver, they began to issue the paper receipts that were not connected to any kind of of commodity. They disconnected it, and, of course, that led to just inflation. And that's when they discovered what happens when you do that. Inflation becomes a huge problem. So this is where inflation really originated. Inflation is defined as a sustained increase in the general level of prices for goods and services. And you can have basically two kinds of inflation. You can have monetary inflation. Monetary inflation is when you have an increase in the money supply, but not a supply shortage, but a willingness to pay more. So all of a sudden people have more gold or silver. There's plenty of resources around them, and they're just now willing to pay more for it. And so now... The, the people that sell those things can can charge more. So this is what happened in the gold rush in California in the mid-19th century. When they discovered gold, prices for everything just went up. And likewise, another phenomenon happened, which is called price inflation. This is a little different. Price increases due now to an imbalance. There's a, now a shortage. There's an imbalance of supply and de- demand. Supply shortage and more demand. So what happened in California initially was monetary inflation, but as people heard about the gold fines, now you have this rush of people. So that now produced a shortage of supply with a lot more people coming in, and that added another level of inflation to what was already going on. So those are the two types of inflation that many economists like to recognize. Now, it's very interesting to watch what's happened to the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar over the last, you know, almost 300 years. And here's a chart that shows you this. Now, the way to think about this, uh, as you look on the left, you start in the year 1775, and you look, the graph shows a, a shows $29. That's basically uh, what $1 in 1775 would be able to purchase today if you were able to bring that dollar from 1775 into today you would be able to buy the equivalent of almost $30 worth of goods and services. So if today you were buying a $30 meal, then you could pay for that in $1 from 1775. So that's how to see this. So you can see that the chart going over all the way over to 1900, so to 125 years, it goes up and down a little bit, but not dramatically. And basically, you see when it goes down, the buying power drops when the government takes on debt, and the government takes on debt because of war. So that's generally the way it's been. So with the Revolutionary War, that drove now the buying power of the dollar down. So there was inflation during the war because of the debt. After the war, they, they pay off the debt. And by 1835, they almost had it all paid off. They got down to just a few thousand dollars of debt. And um, But they never did fully pay it off. And then we have the Civil War. And so, again, we go into debt, and we have inflation kick in because of, of the debt. 
And after the war, now we have, we basically go back to where in around 1900, the buying power of the dollar then was in $26.40 of 2015 dollars. So you can see it's changed just, it's just about down 10% after 125 years. So it's not much inflation really. But now you see from 1900 on to present days, it's dropped dramatically. And this is where, first of all, World War I had taken on a lot of debt in World War I to fund that. And then after World War I, liberalism, the liberal disconnect from biblical standards of everything was kicking in and opening the door for two things that would happen in the 1930s when the Great Depression came. And that is the abandonment of really biblical economics and an embrace of, of Keynesian economics, which is all about debt, and the abandonment of the gold standard. So when those things kicked in, now inflation goes into high gear. And so now you can see the chart dropping dramatically to where now the value of the dollar in 2015, you know, is one thirtieth of what it was in 1775. So this is an example of what inflation does, how it just destroys the the uh, purchasing power of currency, particularly when you disconnect it to, from from the commodity. You see, and that's what happened in the 1930s, that basically the government said no longer will we exchange a dollar for an equivalent of gold or silver. You cannot do that any longer. Now, that was true domestically. It was not true with international trade. In international trade, you could still trade a dollar for gold or silver until 19, the early 1970s when President Nixon then r- removed that capability and the United States went on to a total fiat currency system. So you can see the first 6,000 years thereabouts of human history has largely been commodity-based currency systems. About a 1,000 years ago, countries of the world began to experiment with fiat currencies, and they discovered the reality of inflation that was associated with it. And so now today, almost all of the currencies of the world, in fact, as far as I know, every currency, every monetary system in the world is fiat-based. There is not a commodity-based currency system in the world. And this has led us into a very, very challenging situation. So we have these lies at work. The lies about, you know, that are driving the fiat thinking, the fiat currency system today. During the 20th century, all nations abandoned the gold standard and embraced a fiat monetary system. And a fiat monetary system is based on trust. You have to trust the country issuing that currency. And so some assumptions that are common in this kind of system which is a rejection of the gold in the garden system, in my opinion. I think gold in the garden says that's, that is God's provision for how we do a monetary system. So now the fiat systems are rejecting that. So what is it that drives that? Well, I think there are several assumptions at play that are driving this. There's a general disconnect from Scripture about everything, which is promoted by naturalism, which is all about assuming that the only thing that exists is the natural world and natural cause and effect. There's no spiritual reality. And so this is a way to live assuming there is no God. So this is an atheistic presupposition. 
And the theory of evolution has been used to support naturalism, and Greek dualism has also been used to isolate the Christian influence into a sphere that makes it irrelevant. So we have this disconnect from Scripture that has gone into high gear in the last hundred years here in the world. The gold standard is viewed as limiting, and that is you're limited, your monetary system is limited to the to the how much gold you have and the rate at which you're able to produce gold or acquire gold. So everybody views that as very limiting. Furthermore, they governments of the world assume that they could and should stimulate, stimulate economic growth through monetary policy. This came out of the Great Depression. The Great Depression was caused by increasing speculation and the use of debt. Instead of really being physically responsible, people were borrowing large amounts of money and making wild, wild speculative bets on investments. And when it fell apart, it threw the country into depression. Coupled to that was the whole idea of reserve banking. Reserve banking basically says that banks take your money, they invest it the way they want to, and they only keep a small amount in reserve for somebody that may want their money. But if a whole bunch of people want their money, they're not capable of meeting that demand, and that throws the bank into a crisis. That's what happened in the Great Depression. So when when President uh, Roosevelt came into office and he was dealing with this, he was looking for some dramatic changes, which he and he did. He made a dramatic change in philosophy that drove what happened in the in the Great Depression, which really became a driver for how the world would go. Keynesian economics. A rejection of a gold-based commodity system, fiat money, very controlled banking, where now the government is standing behind the banking, which, and you're asking, well, who's standing behind the government? That's a great question. Because see, this is kind of a house of cards. Further assumptions, there are no, the fiat money system is based on the idea of Keynesian economics, which is based on the idea there is no day of reckoning. There'll be no time where we will have to give an account and pay back our debts. These are, again, are assumptions that are being made today. And probably the crowning assumption in all this is what the Christian community is assuming. The Christian community has got a wrong understanding of what we call the Great Commission. They think it's a mandate to world evangelism. It's not that. It's a mandate to world discipleship. That's a very different mandate. If you think the Great Commission is a mandate to world uh, evangelism, then you will spend a lot of money sending a lot of people around the world trying to get people to just say the sinner's prayer and confess that they've accepted Christ. If you believe that Great Commission is a mandate to world discipleship, you will know that the model Jesus gave us of how to disciple people is what he, what Christ had in mind. He wants us to go and find the people we've been called to disciple and go deep with them and help them grow and mature in Christ. It's not just enough to get them to pray the sinner's prayer. We have to help them grow up and mature and get grounded in living a biblical worldview. That takes enormous amounts of time and energy. You do not have time to go travel the world and witness to everybody you can find. You've got to find those you've been specifically assigned to work with and work with them. So because we have this wrong view of the Great Commission, we have spent who knows how much money and how many people have been thrown at this world evangelistic effort that's borne almost no fruit. And the result is 
This has contributed to the financial calamity in the world. We've used enormous amounts of resources, and that's put pressure on people to go into debt. We have tremendous debt. Every country in the world is now a debtor nation. You say, wow, at what point does this get fixed? Yeah, this is a huge problem. And this is why biblical economics is so critical. We have to get back to a biblical view of how to manage economic systems, how to think biblically about monetary systems. We are a long way from it, but we have to start that journey now. We can't continue on this road. It's leading us down to financial disaster. So may the Lord give us grace to recognize the signs of the time. And may we have the wisdom, as the men of Issachar did, to know what we should do and do the correct things aligned with the will and ways of God to facilitate His purposes while we're here on earth for His glory and honor. In Jesus' name.